Welcome to the Conscious Conversation podcast. This is Ann Nicholson. Conscious Conversation owes its initial inspiration to the foundational work of author, environmentalist, and eurythmist Marjorie Spock, 1904 to 2008. In this episode, I'll read excerpts from Marjorie Spock's essay, Reflections on Community Building, from Group Moral Artistry. Nowhere is there a more stringent need to rise above the level of sympathy and antipathy than in listening and conversing. We cannot perceive the spirits of our fellow men if we allow clouds of subjectivity to hang between them and our understanding. That space must be cleared of all obscuration so that we may become, like the disembodied, tremendously knowledgeable, able to see with whom we are dealing and what love requires our doing in the situation. One thing that love requires our doing is to digest not just what is spoken, but the speaker also. But how different this act is from those in which one hungry ego devours another. It may be called a Manichaean deed of cleansing, wherein the sacrificial spirit of the listener blots up, or, as it were, absorbs the speaker's imperfections. It is as though the latter's dross were purged away by the manner of his friend's listening. Then what is eternal in his being stands out clearly and can be mirrored back to him for his self-knowledge. The Manichaean service indicated is one not often met with in our time nor does it come naturally to modern egohood. Yet it has something in common with parental nurture of the highest order. A wise mother performs it for her children when, almost wordlessly, she soothes them in an upset mood and restores them to serenity. She has, as it were, herself absorbed the weaknesses that made them vulnerable to upset, and, in digesting these, transmuted them into her own strength, balance, steadfastness. This product of her spirit's work she then raised back, and it becomes therapy for her environment. Would forgiveness not remain an empty gesture and change absolutely nothing for the better if it did not imply helping to lighten the dead weight of unacceptable qualities with which every one of us is burdened? We speak of bearing with each other. But bearing with is more than passive toleration. 
It means actively taking up and carrying what the other carries. Always a heavy load of unregeneracy. Forgiving, like all deeds of love, has this active quality that transforms both forgiver and forgiven. It is, moreover, a direct following in the footsteps of the Christ, of whom we are told that he brought salvation by taking the sins of the world upon himself, that is, digesting them in deeds of Manichaean love on a cosmic scale. He made straight the path of forgiveness since traveled by those who would be esoteric Christians. And there is a second service love requires of listeners, which even the least tainting by sympathy or antipathy undermines and can render dangerous. That is the group task of reflecting back the speaker to himself as from a mirror. There need be only a slight flaw in a mirror for it to falsify what it reflects. It must be flawless to produce objective images. Furthermore, unless it is held absolutely motionless, images cannot be brought to focus in it. Sympathy and antipathy intrude distorting flaws into the mirroring activity of groups, while the stillness needed to focus images is shattered by the movement inherent in these soul reactions. With proper effort, sympathies and antipathies in voluntary motions can be eliminated by a circle that feels its responsibility for disciplining itself and fostering self-knowledge in its members. But the effort must be communal as well as individual. To succeed in it, all those present will need to join forces to build a common consciousness of Christ in me. This may seem an impossibly high goal to work for. It is certainly not easy to achieve, but genuine esoteric group life is inconceivable without it. It is as much for the sine qua non of group accomplishment as meditation is in the esoteric life of individuals. Indeed, it is meditation in its purest form, selfless, deliberate, fully conscious inner action, which brings souls to experience the spiritual world as it lives in and through the human spirit.
most of us are so habituated to what has always been done that we find it impossible to conceive of a leaderless society. Nor do we want one. It seems a condition fraught with far too many dangers. So when a leader goes, we look at once for new ones to arise who will rescue us from our confusion, dispel our nightmares, put the world to rights with their superior capacities, exactly as good parents do for their small children. But to yearn for leaders is dependence, the same trend that makes the lecture form hang on. Of course, it is easier to be shown the way than to find it oneself with independent effort, to let oneself be lifted toward the heights than to take part in the strenuous work of lifting. But the challenge of the times is to adequacy, adequacy such as free and loving men develop through their interest. The esoteric path cannot be for children tied, as it were, to parental leading strings, but for adults who deliberately fit themselves for mature, creative, spiritual action. There can scarcely be a better training for it than conversation. In such activity, the leader, if there may be said to be one, is not a person, but the theme, the spiritual fact under exploration. Here again it is vital to distinguish between discussions and conversations. Intellects active in discussion typically make straight for the mark of a conclusion. They penetrate fact as though with mental arrows, unaware that the fact may be a living thing that dies when so approached and becomes nothing more than a taxidermist specimen. Whereas those who engage in conversation see their function as a group process of inviting truth exactly as they would invite a human guest and making the atmosphere receptive to it. But they do not expect thoughts to come to them in the physical world. They must go out to the world of thought to see and shape their understanding to the shape of truth. It is as though they take themselves to the border of the country where the truth lives and there make of their souls a dwelling suited to receive and entertain the question. Or it could be said that a grail cup is fashioned in a communal exercise of intuition and held up to receive the precious essence of the living thought. Esoteric groups that approach their task as they must intuitively, in the meaning given the term in the philosophy of freedom, have neither need nor use for leaders. 
for to say it once again, they meet for inspiration not on this side of the threshold, but beyond it, in a realm where the world spirit is their guide and leader. From the founding days of the Anthroposophical Society, members have been wrestling with the problem of how to shape the time they spend together. And they have tried everything. Lectures, joint reading, and study of a Steiner book, panel discussions, artistic presentations, and even the intellectual free-for-all of the forum. None of these practices has yet been generally or finally adopted. Should the fact that the matter is still unresolved not be taken to indicate that the perfect answer, if there is one, has not been found? And does the question not then become, have we been looking in the right direction? Surely the purpose of any gathering, whether it be worldly or esoteric, is to generate more life in a professional group, greater life of insight, than one can generate alone. Otherwise people would save themselves the wear and tear of going out and use the time alone to better purpose. But how is life generated? What develops it most strongly in the body social? Must it be left to chance or grace? Or can it be planned, as a farmer takes measures to assure a harvest? The cosmos has not left the development of life to chance. It has planned it, setting a sun and moon into the sky as polarities through and between which, see Rudolf Steiner's lecture, Das Tor der Sonne und Das Tor des Mondes, forces of the planetary system enter into life-begetting, life-enhancing, interchange, a process without which life of any kind is unthinkable. In the human soul, too, polarity serves as the life-engendering element, and esotericists discern a sun and moon pole in man's life as spirit, as he alternates between active doing and reflective thinking. What may be learned for the shaping of esoteric social life from such considerations? Is it not that interchange is all-important? That too great dependence on the lecture form, which makes the lecturer the sun pole, his audience the moon, scants a balanced life of soul in the listeners, and hence in the society? 
does our society not suffer drastically from insufficient life through having failed to take a course that would have developed life more vigorously in the rank and file? Could there indeed be a rank and file if we had based group practice on the recognition that every member is a unique spiritual being, a unique treasure house of humanness from which the common life might be enriched? Some individuals to whom such questions have been put have shown themselves so fixed in the lecture concept that they have countered, but you can't have everybody lecturing. Others have felt that the discussion groups which they mistakenly imagined to be the proposed substitute for lectures are not only too everyday for esoteric life, but encourage the expression of immature ideas and tend to subject meetings to domination by, ne by neurotic individuals with an urge to talk incessantly. Furthermore, they say, the shy personalities would still not participate, but merely listen, moon-like, as they always do. And finally, we are not there to say what we think, but to study what those have said who really know. These may be perfectly cogent arguments against having discussion groups on esoteric subject matter. But no such mistaken course has been proposed. For, by its very nature, discussion remains an intellectual exercise, and as such takes place on this side of the threshold. It is therefore entirely unsuited to esoteric interchange, which has as its goal crossing the threshold and entering together into spiritual life. What is proposed here is rather dialogue in the sense of Gertian conversation. Conversations of the kind Goethe had in mind would almost certainly be made the modus vivendi of esoteric group life if the difference between them and discussions were better understood. They are actually a form of shared meditation in which the group as a whole consciously seeks to make itself a vessel for spiritual truth. To do that, members of the group must know what it is to experience thoughts as living beings. And indeed, idiom reflects wide awareness of the fact that ideas can be living organisms, for we call getting an idea conceiving. Everyone who has ever had a living thought knows how apt the term is. He has experienced the fact that thinking begins with the soul's impregnation 
by a germinal idea. One is aware from the start that it is present there and growing, though perhaps not at first, of its shape or fullness. Then it gradually takes on form and substance. Only after an interval of ripening is the child of this spiritual begetting ready to be born as full-fledged insight. When we speak of thought activity as brooding, we also reflect a feeling for it as an evolutionary process. Even, indeed, awareness of the fact that a thought evolves through warmth of interest and is to be found growing in our consciousness. That we ourselves are changed as a result of having harbored or nurtured spiritual progeny, ideas, and brought them into realization must be obvious. And that the spiritual world also changes through thus sharing its creative purpose with us is most likely. For that we came, that just such changes might be brought about. Groups engaging in Gertian conversations become ever more conscious of the maturing role time plays in a thought being's evolution. They will find, for example, that it is neither desirable nor possible for ideas to spring full-fledged from the spirits of their members on the very day of their conceiving. Insight can grow only gradually and organically from small beginnings. And the group working patiently with an idea knows this. It recognizes that it is participating in the life process of the moral universe. All the group's members find themselves caught up in its fruitfulness. A mood of confidence awakens in which even the shyest, no longer dreading to expose intellectual shortcomings, finds himself able to contribute. The germinal ideas that become the focus of group meditation are given to the group by destiny, exactly as a child comes to its parents. They begin their life course as questions that have taken root in the souls of members and are then brought to the group for fostering. Here, too, time plays a vital role. There is no unnatural rush, as with a lecture, to get an idea across to listeners who may not have entertained prior interest in the subject. 
a process similar to plumping one's child down in another's lap and saying, here, take it, it's all yours now. In such a course, there is a great chance that hearers may not accept or will do little with it. Whereas, in the slow-ripening group-nurture process outlined here, ideas are tenderly received as presents from on high and become the whole group's common nursling. The query, where is Rudolf Steiner in this, must be answered. Everywhere, from start to finish, it is he to whom we owe our knowledge that a spiritual world exists and owe any capacity we have to be at home there. It is he the study of whose works awakens such a wealth of germinal questions in us that life can never again seem poor or uninteresting. It is he who has mapped the landscape in which the answers to our questions will be found. And through group meeting, Time may not be spent reading out his lectures. That same lecture material provides a large part of the substance of the meeting. For it is assumed that books or lectures bearing on the subject matter have been carefully studied, not merely read, by the members prior to the meeting. When the group regathers, it thus surrounds Dr. Steiner's thought with the additional life which that thought has generated in each student. Something becomes of his contribution which could never have grown out of a one-time common reading of a lecture. Four lectures allow no time, either for ripening or for an exchange of ripened spiritual life. Those who accustom themselves to the conversation form of meeting and to its requirement that the members be prepared and active feel increasingly what a superficial, wasteful use of spiritual substance is entailed in a one-time hearing or a reading out of lectures. In fact, the latter method even comes to seem disrespectful to the lecturer, whose germinal ideals fall on largely unprepared and thus largely unresponsive ground. It may be objected that Rudolf Steiner himself chose the lecture and book form of presentation. But we might remember first that this was the beginning phase of anthroposophy, when it was needful to endow the earth with a great spiritual treasure that could be drawn upon for centuries, 
and that none of the listeners was able at that time to contribute much more than a receptive consciousness. Secondly, that since Rudolf Steiner's death, we have been in a quite different phase, in that none who have followed him have possessed like stature and a like mission to use their fellow men as sounding boards for mightiest truth. Thirdly, that the spiritual activity to which he sought unceasingly to rouse us would seem to be best served in the present phase by a form of effort that evokes maximum participation in the members, a criterion which the lecture form cannot satisfy. And do we not show a lack of confidence in anthroposophy and in its power to bring human souls to burgeoning when we mistrust the conversation form of meeting? Are we not saying, in effect, that growth is possible to some, but not in significant degree to others? Anthroposophy makes it clear that all mankind is involved in a cosmic growth process, and that every soul brings unique substance to that evolution. Are we in practice really making use of what each individual offers and providing him with the full stimulus of our interest in his further growth? That growth and evolution come about through the interchange of two kinds of influences, the cosmic and the earthly. Anthroposophy supplies the cosmic element it is sunlight to souls rightly rooted in the earth. But an earth must be there. And the earth in which the soul takes root is society, associations, large and small, that feel concern and will accept responsibility for the soul's development. No matter how much sun streams down upon it, the soul cannot flourish if the earth provides too meager nutriment. Should the anthroposophical society therefore not consider it its first obligation to serve as the very model of a true group process?